Well, as it turns out, both our catechism and our communion lesson this morning touch on the issue and topic of idolatry, which is one of the central sins of the Old Testament, uh, which it, we are warned against. And that uh, powerful warning of Psalm 115, that those who make idols will become like them. We will become uh, blind and uh, senseless. Um, and that warning uh, that idols is uh, a denial of the Lord who is indeed in heaven. And so we take up today uh, the concerns which the Protestant Reformation has with the Roman Catholic Mass and the elements of idolatry within it, among other things, um, as well as uh, Paul's commandment in Ephesians that covetousness is a form of idolatry. So we will be reading about sacrifices and the fulfillment of all Old Testament sacrifices in Christ Jesus from our New Testament lesson, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 18. This is God's holy word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. One of the powerful teachings of Hebrews chapter 10 is that in these sacrifices, in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, of the law, there is a reminder of sins every year. In other words, yes, the sacrifices pointed forward to Christ and his once and for all sacrifice that would take away sins. But the sacrifices also played the role of the law as a part of the law by reminding us that sin had not yet been atoned for. That there was only one perfect sacrifice that was yet to come. And so when Paul 
or rather the author to the Hebrews, whom is unnamed, loops back around in verse 17 and says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He is signaling that new covenant worship has taken on a totally different character than old covenant worship. Old covenant worship was premised upon anticipating the coming sacrifice of Christ and a reminder that sins had not been removed. New covenant worship no longer needs that reminder. For he has made us perfect once and for all. And this is really a, a profound uh, difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And it's a profound point of disagreement between us and the Roman Catholic Church. And so we'll be looking at Heidelberg Catechism, chapter uh, uh, questions 80 through 82 today. And uh, one of our concerns is that the Roman Catholic and the medieval church... Uh, really got off track and failed to grasp the teaching of Hebrews chapter 10 and the centrality of Christ's one sacrifice for sins on the cross. So this is one of our longer uh, Lord's Days in the Catechism, Lord's Day 30, uh, on page 886 in the back of our Trinity Psalter hymnal. And uh, I encourage you to read it along responsively with us. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Why, or rather, who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper, who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Well, we take up today in Lord's Day 30 uh, what I think is far and away uh, the most controversial Lord's Day in our catechism. Um, and as we'll note in a moment, uh, one of the reasons it's controversial is because 
question 80 was not in the very first edition uh, printed of our catechism in January of 1563. So uh, briefly, we're going to spend most of our time on question 80 and then uh, look at the problem, our concerns with the Mass. But finally, we'll uh, look at the latter two questions, 81 and 82, who shall partake of the Supper. Now, one of the central concerns in the teaching of the Lord's Supper uh, was to correct and indeed to condemn the Mass. And one of the questions that is raised by this uh, teaching of our catechism is, was this critique accurate? Did it accurately present the position of the medieval Roman church? Was it accurate in the 16th century? And is it still accurate today? Has the Roman church changed their teaching uh, vis a vis the Mass? Um, should we still condemn uh, the Mass on two fronts? That it's a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Uh, one of the things that makes this a sensitive issue is if we say that the Mass is a condemnable idolatry, is that therefore undermining our ability to have uh, relations with brothers and sisters, uh, with believers who we believe are in the Roman Catholic communion. I was born and raised a Catholic. I have many family members who are still Catholics. And we understand that though the church does teach, according to our confession, a condemnable idolatry, and we will point out today that it does, that there may yet still be believers in that communion who have uh, what the church has often held, uh, a felicitous inconsistency. They may trust in Christ while their church undermines that faith in Christ or teaches something that contradicts it. And so this is a very delicate balance. I believe last week I referred to brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic communion. And yet we have grave reason to doubt the salvation of many in Rome because the doctrine of the gospel is taught so confusedly and indeed denied at certain points. Uh, We have many reasons uh, to condemn the teaching of that church as we'll see today. So while we affirm that there are lost sheep wandering in the Roman communion, Uh, We want to engage with them lovingly and be sorrowful uh, for this uh, broken uh, rift within the one holy Catholic church, which we believe is the church that teaches faithfully as the apostles do. So uh, I want to step back before we turn to the mass, which is this area of great conflict, and just realize that we're coming to the end of the catechism's teaching on the sacraments. It's worth pulling back and thinking of the big picture. After teaching the articles of the creed, we were taught that it is by faith alone that we are saved. Again, another point of direct contradiction with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent condemned the teaching, condemned all those who teach that we are saved by faith alone. We believe the articles of the creed and we place our trust in the triune God who is the only source of salvation. And we ask, where does this faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the word and confirms it by the sacraments. Questions 66 and 68 through 68 define sacraments in general as signs and seals that point to Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. And tell us that baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only sacraments uh, appointed by Christ for this purpose, for this use in the New Testament. Now, the medieval church had not only uh, corrupted the understanding of what a sacrament is, but they had added greatly to their number. And Rome still teaches that there are seven sacraments, 
Um, bonus points if you can name them all. Uh, baptism, confession, uh, Eucharist, confirmation, marriage, holy orders, and last rites. Um, we're troubled because these sacraments tended to not assure one of their salvation, but to increase doubt in the believer. If you did not have sufficient or appropriate or appropriately received sacramental grace, your salvation was in doubt. And so again, we've spent almost 20% of our catechism talking about the sacraments and the Lord's Supper. Um, Eight times in this section, they have pointed towards the one sacrifice on the cross. That phrase occurs again and again and again. We see in the teaching of Hebrews that that's really focused more than anything on the Lord's Supper. In contradistinction, in in, uh, contrast to the medieval teaching of the Mass. Now, undoubtedly, our catechism is a human document. It reflects its particular uh, time and place. It reflects a unique historical context where uh, Luther disagreed with Rome, Zwingli disagreed with Luther and Rome, Calvin didn't agree with Luther or Zwingli or Rome. So there was a lot of conflict over a span of 60, 80, and 100 years and ongoing today. And so our catechism takes up some of these contentious issues. But it leaves us, in question 81 and 82, I believe, in conclusion, with great comfort in the supper. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the Mass. Uh, we can and must, indeed, respectfully disagree. Uh, as I said, I was uh, raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I love my family members who are members of the Church. I've seen signs of sincere faith in Christ. And it's a tragedy that those who seek to their salvation in Christ, in some sense can still be so confused. It should be a warning to all of us that those who love Jesus uh, can be yet twisted to error. And especially, Satan delights in confusing the teaching of the church. So we believe that uh, the sacraments, the teaching of the sacraments, is deeply flawed. And the most respectful thing we can do for those whom we love who are a part of the Roman Catholic Communion, is honestly and lovingly point out our disagreements and their errors. So, I noted before that Question 80 was not in the first printing of the Catechism, January of 1563. Uh, well, part in part, the reason that was so was that the Roman Catholic Council of Trent, which met for um, 18 years, not constantly, but on and off, from um, 1545 up until 1563. Um, They held their 22nd session in September of 1562, just a few months before our catechism was printed. And that was the session that taught and confirmed and basically locked down the medieval teaching on the Mass. So Rome didn't formalize their teaching with such clarity until September 17th, 1562. Well, this is the 16th century. Things have to get printed and distributed and whatnot. So this is the most likely reason that in January, our catechism didn't come out and condemn Rome as clearly as it did just a few months later. When they received the teaching of Rome, confirmed, validated, uh, you know, held up as dogma by the Pope, they realized that they had to address this error as directly and clearly as possible. It had been their hope and prayer that they could convince the Roman church to come to a better position. Um, Needless to say, a Roman Catholic defender would nuance their view differently 
Our catechism fronts our concerns uh, with it. But again, these concerns are twofold. First, that the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. Rome views the Mass as a participation, a representation of the sacrifice of Christ again. Christ's body and blood are placed on the altar and offered up to God as a meritorious and propitiatory sacrifice. That's the first concern. The second concern is that if Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, he is there to be locally adored and worshipped in the bread and wine. And this is uh, these two concerns are summed up as a di- denial of the one sacrifice and a condemnable idolatry. Now, um, many Roman Catholics today would disagree with the first statement. They would say we wouldn't put it that way. But they do affirm the second. Uh, and I'll get to that in just a moment from the current catechism of the Catholic Church. Rome teaches a very subtle and somewhat ambiguous, I would hold, and somewhat mystical uh, position regarding the Mass. Not that it is a re-sacrifice of Christ in their view, but a part of the one sacrifice of Christ. So they say, yes, there is one sacrifice of Christ, per Hebrews uh, 10. But we represent that sacrifice to God. The church joins with that sacrifice and turns around and offers this up to God that turns away wrath. Um, Our author in the 16th century could point to prayers of the Roman service. Holy Father, almighty and eternal God, receive this immaculate host, which I, thine unworthy servant, offer unto you. The living and true God for my sins, offenses and neglects and for all around me, yea, for all faithful Christians living and dead, that it may result in salvation to me and everlasting life. Receive this offering for my salvation. That's the 16th century prayer for the mass. The canon of the mass has remember, O Lord, thy servants and handmaidens all around me whose faith and acknowledged devotion are known to you. For whom we offer unto you and present unto you this sacrifice of praise for themselves and for all theirs for the redemption of their souls, for the hope of their salvation and preservation. So in the 16th century, those were the prayers of of the Roman church. And it was certainly uh, clear that they held that that was a, a sacrifice for the redemption of souls. This is why churches practice regularly masses for the dead, for the departed, to assist them in their passage to glory, which was not assured to them. Now, we can look at the the catechism of the Catholic Church uh, today, the modern catechism, and I believe it's clear that Rome still teaches a position that fundamentally agrees with this. It is a holy sacrifice because it makes present the one sacrifice of Christ the Savior. Uh, The catechism says... um, Sometimes in procession, the bread and wine are brought to the altar where they will be offered by the priest in the name of Christ in the Eucharistic sacrifice in which they become his body and blood. As often as the sacrifice of the Christ by cross by which Christ our Pasch, our, our lamb, has been sacrificed is celebrated on the altar. On the altar, rather. The, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. You see, there's this very somewhat mystical view. The same now offers that sacrifice through the ministry of the priests. So this is where we would contend there is an error. They believe that priests at the altar are offering the sacrifice of Christ again or participating in a sense. Only the manner of offering is different, they say. 
It's offered in an unbloody manner. Indeed, this is one of the fundamental errors by which Rome views the church's salvation being procured through our faithful sharing in Christ's sacrifices. In other words, it is the church itself that merits and earns its salvation. In the Eucharist, the sacrifice of Christ becomes also the sacrifice of the members of his body. This is from the Catechism, 1368. The lives of the faithful, their praise, their sufferings, their prayer, their work, are united with those of Christ and with his total offering, and so acquire a new value. Christ's sacrifice present, present on the altar makes it possible for all generations of Christians to be united with his offering. Now, this might sound like the splitting of hairs, uh, but it is very important, and especially in Hebrews chapter 10. We do offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. But the Old Testament very clearly distinguished between thank offerings and those propitiatory sacrifices which turned away God's wrath. And it's clear that there's a confusion here in the Roman church. Our sacrifices turn away God's wrath. And regarding uh, the presence of Christ in the idolatry of the Eucharist, the Catechism teaches the worship of the Eucharist. That's a quote. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of our adoration of the Lord. We genuflect and bow. Uh, The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist the cult of adoration, not only during the Mass, but outside of it, exposing them uh, in a monstrance, that's the name of a, a... A display case, as it were, often in the shape of a cross with gold and clear glass. So you can see the bread uh, uh, that demonstrates, as it were, the body of Christ. And on the Feast of Corpus Christi, I happened to be in Rome once on the Feast of Corpus Christi. And there were massive celebrations and parades as Christ was paraded through town. And people sang praises and worshipped the Eucharist. Their view Christ was paraded through town, right? Christ is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. It's really interesting that uh, Catholic apologists uh, don't, don't try to sidestep this concern with the Mass. They are all in on the presence of Christ to be adored in the Eucharist. Um, if the host is not Jesus, they admit what we are doing is gross idolatry. That's Kimberly Hahn, a Catholic apologist. Peter Kreeft, if the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist were not true, this adoration would be the most momentous idolatry, bowing to bread and worshiping wine. But if it is true, then to refuse to adore is equally monstrous. You see how Roman Catholic apologists frame it up as kind of an either or. And we believe that Christ is not physically present in the wine Based on the previous teaching of the catechism. So we do condemn. We must condemn this as an idolatry. Which tragically takes away from the comfort of the Lord's Supper. Our hearts should be heavy with these matters. And we should pray for our friends in the Roman communion. uh, Family members and loved ones. And we should pray for peace and unity in the church to this day. Though uh, we have uh, deeply held and, and tragic commitments to falsehood and error. We don't condemn individuals, but we condemn a teaching and we condemn a church that leads people astray. So we do so with sorrow and with our deepest prayer and love. 
But it's important, and again, I think the catechism closes on a very positive note in question 81 and 82. Who should come to the Lord's table and who should be admitted to the table? Two very important questions and two different questions which we must distinguish. The church shouldn't admit those who by what they say or how they live show that they are unbelieving. It is a blessing for believers, for those who have been baptized into Christ. Uh, The early church would dismiss those who were still learning and discovering the faith before they held the Eucharist. They would dismiss it from their assemblies. And it's often believed that this is where the term the mass came from. Ita missa est. You are now dismissed. The, the term of dismissal for those who were not yet members of the body of Christ. Of course, the church can't see into people's hearts. And as we'll see in Paul's warnings in Ephesians chapter 5 today, we acknowledge that there are hypocrites within the church. There are sheep and goats. There are wheat and tares. Uh, The day of judgment is viewed as a dragnet that goes out. And people will be separated at the last. But those who make a credible profession of faith in our judgment. And live according to that profession. Live repentant lives seeking their salvation in Christ alone. Are uh, welcomed into communion in the church. And communion at the Lord's table. Jumping back a half step to question 81. Who should come? And this is really good news, brothers and sisters. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. And who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith, to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And the catechism leads us to ask, and to teach our children as well, are you displeased with your sins? Uh, Do you understand and trust that your sins are forgiven by Christ? If you can acknowledge that and understand that, you should be able to come. And and this is important for us as, as we evaluate when our children should profess faith and become communicant members in the church. Do you trust also that your weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ? We might long and acknowledge our sins, but also worry that we're too sinful to come into his holy presence. And Jesus says, no, this is is a cleansing, purifying meal. Do you desire to strengthen your faith and to lead a better life? If you are sinning in a high-handed fashion, if you are committed to sin as a course of life, if you are in the middle of, of an affair and leaving your spouse... Right? If you're in the middle of embezzling funds from your workplace, if you are in the middle of, of, a, of an ugly legal dispute in uh, your business in the world where you're slandering other people and attacking one another, maybe you should pause and reflect. Humble yourself. Paul in Ephesians will say, do not partner with darkness. He uses one of these Greek words with the, the soon uh, prefix. Do not join together with. As he has talked earlier about how we are joined together with Christ. And joined together with the new temple. With the new creation. And so he says don't go back and join yourself with darkness. And so we are called to examine ourselves. You must hate those sins. You must repent. Though we acknowledge no repentance is perfect. We make but small progress. 
to the holiness God requires. And yet we seek and pursue and do make progress according to all of the Ten Commandments. Brothers and sisters, if that is true of you, in a few moments in our communion service, you are invited to come and enjoy uh, that fellowship that strengthens your faith. Let us pray. Merciful God, we come humbly before your throne of grace, and we acknowledge that the one true altar is in heaven, that the Holy of Holies, that blueprint followed by Moses, the tabernacle and temple, was a shadow cast from above and cast from the future of that true sacrifice to come, the true altar, where once and for all, far better than the blood of goats and bulls, Christ offered his meritorious blood, perfectly innocent, perfectly faithful, perfectly obedient on our behalf humbled himself to the point of death so that we might know you as our Savior and Lord and Father and King. Nourish us with this meal that our faith may grow strong, our lives more holy. In Jesus' name, amen.